And tonight, continuation of the Word of God, looking at the Bible. Tonight, entitled, The Proof of the Bible. And uh, we're going to walk through a little bit and uh, just a handful of prophecies we're going to look at that were actually fulfilled to the T. And I'm excited to look at that. Okay, let me see here. Matthew 5, verse 17, if you will. Notice what he says. This is Jesus speaking again. Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Then he says, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now we'll pause there in our scripture reading, but notice Jesus uses the word fulfill or fulfilled. And that's exactly what he did. He came to fulfill. Now notice tonight in your notes there, the question is, how can we prove the Bible is verbally inspired or is the verbally inspired word of God? Well, notice Isaiah 41 there in your notes. Isaiah 41, verse 21. This is what's said. Produce your cause, saith the Lord. Bring forth your strong reasons, saith the king of Jacob. Let them bring them forth. Show us what shall happen. Let them show the former things what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them, or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that we may know that ye are God's. Yea, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and behold it together. Behold, ye are of nothing, and your work of naught. An abomination is he that chooseth you. Now again, this is the Lord speaking, and He says, "Produce your cause. Let me bring it forth. Let me see. Bring your gods, and let's see what they can do. Let's see how they do." This is the same, very similar to what Elijah did up on Mount Carmel. Remember what he did? He said, "Hey, call your prophets of Baal and have them call down fire to lick up this altar." And uh, nothing happened. And he started making fun of them. You know, maybe he's, your gods are on vacation. Maybe they're, they're out. Maybe he's sleeping or taking a nap. You need to wake him up. And then Elijah said, go ahead and stand back and let me show you the real God. And at the end of it all, all the people in unison said, the Lord, he is the God. Okay. So this is what he's saying. He's saying, prove your cause. Prove your reason. Bring your reasons here. Now notice the second paragraph under that. That God says that the true test of a religion, its literature, and its God is the ability to predict future events. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Bible. We know that. All of them have come to pass in every detail except the ones that tell the second coming of Jesus. Now, God challenges all other religions, uh, uh, but the religious, liter religious literature of other beliefs do not attempt to challenge God and the Bible in this way. Now, just clarifying. There's no other book on planet Earth or in human history that has ever done what the Bible has done. Okay. The, the, the Quran, you, you read through If you've ever tried to read it, it's very confusing. But they don't put out prophecies. It doesn't put out a lot of prophetic things. Other books like that. So we understand the Bible is very unique in that. Now, fulfilled prophecy is one of the strongest proofs that the Bible is God's perfect and infallible word to man. Consider several of these. Okay, so let's look at I'm just going to give you just a handful of these prophecies, prophetic things that actually came true. The first one is Cyrus, the great of the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, let her under that a man named Cyrus would be ruler of the nations. Notice Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 28. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, 
and shall perform all my pleasure, <clears throat> even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Letter B, he would release the captive people of God. Isaiah 45, he goes on to say, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two leavened gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Well, letter C, he would also decree that Jerusalem and the temple be rebuilt. Again, continuing in Isaiah 45, verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall let my captives uh, go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts. So Isaiah wrote this message from God in about 712 B.C. And again, in our Bible Institute, we've been studying some of this, but the, the dates are somewhat off due to uh, current archaeological discoveries and such. But Cyrus was not even born until a hundred years later. Isn't that fascinating? He became ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire about 550, more than 150 years after it was prophesied. Isn't that amazing? It was already prophesied, and so we see this first one. The Bible is accurate. Now, about 20 years after he took the throne, he decreed that the captive Jews would then return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Notice Ezra 1. Ezra 1, verse 1, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven, hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is there among you of all his people. His God be with you. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Build the house of the Lord of God. Israel, he is God, which is Jerusalem. You ever wonder why the kings of the world are always concerned about Jerusalem? I mean, why? Uh, a piece of property that's smaller than New Jersey, and they're concerned about Jerusalem. Just leave it alone. What's the big deal? They know. They know. I don't know why Putin is so concerned about Israel, but he is, right? I don't know why the guy, uh, can't recall how to say his name, but from China. Why is he so concerned about Israel? Why is Elon Musk so interested in Israel? Why are these people, why? Because they know something. The most of the world doesn't know except for us Christians. We already know. The Bible tells us, right? There's something special. And now, when Isaiah penned the message, Judah was not captive. The city and temple were not destroyed and had no need of rebuilding. So we see that, okay? Very clear. Let's look at another one. The second one is another one, the destruction of Babylon. Okay, I won't read all of this verse, but notice Isaiah 13, verse 17. He says here, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them, which shall not regard silver. And as for gold, they shall not delight in it. By the way, they're gonna, they're, they abolished currency. Did you notice that? He says, here's gold. It's worthless. Here's silver. Will that help me? Worthless. We're about ready to go into a cashless society. Have you been following the news? They want to put chips in us. We already know that. Uh, they want to put a chip in the forehead or in the hand. And when you walk out of the store, it just... Bloop, bloop, bloop. I, that's pretty convenient, isn't it? I mean, just I walked through this, out the store and they already charged me. Uh, pretty convenient. But I don't know. You know what's coming next, right? Uh, the mark of the beast. So again, he says, no, they won't delight in it. Their bows also shall dash the young uh, men to pieces. They shall have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Uh -huh, it sounds like America. Their eyes shall not spare children. Yes. And Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldees, excellency, shall be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. It shall never be inhabited, neither shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. He goes on and on. But notice letter A under that. The magnificent city of Babylon would be taken by the Medes, 
Letter B, it would be destroyed and never rebuilt. And C, it would be a dwelling place for wild beasts. Now this is very interesting. This was written in 712 or thereabout. The Medes were not then a power. Assyria was the power which threatened Babylon and the world. In 538, Darius the Mede, one of Cyrus the Great's generals, captured the city with great slaughter. Not many years later, the Persians tore down the walls and completely destroyed the city, forbidding it to be dwelt in again. This was the end of Babylon the Great, the glory, quote-unquote, of kingdoms. Although attempts at partial restoration were made from time to time during the next few centuries, at one time a Parthian king made the site of the old city a royal game preserve for wild animals. Today it still lies in absolute ruins, and the wild beasts of the desert roam in its ruins. So very clear. Babylon the Great was never rebuilt. If you know a little bit about history, Saddam Hussein, back in the 80s, at the height of his power, uh, he went back with the goal of trying to rebuild Babylon. And he went over there and they did some excavations and such and found some coins and other things. And he started to put into currency, or into the smith, whoever it is, a coin with his face on it. And it has something to do with Babylon. Well, anyways, his attempts to rebuild it were obliterated. Right? The Gulf War came on. They overthrew him, etc., etc. So just again, another thing. The destruction of Babylon the Great. Now, by the way, they, people in that time would say that heard this prophecy. Why? Babylon the Great, the glory of the kingdoms. No way. That kingdom would never cease. America, why are we not in end-time prophecy? Why is America not mentioned in end-time prophecy? The great America could never be destroyed. We have the most powerful military on planet Earth. Never. Ah, I wouldn't say never. Something's going to happen. Uh, I don't know what you believe about that, but some believe will be dispersed or something of that nature. So anyways, this is what it is. Now, let's look at a third one. This is interesting. Now, there's a prophecy against this place called Tyre, written about 590 or so. Ezekiel 26, if you're still there, let's jump over there. I want to read just some of this. Ezekiel uh, chapter 26. Now, here's another one. Very interesting. This, this, this area of the world a city called Tyre. And if you read through Ezekiel, some of it can get a little bit confusing, but some of it is really right on. I mean, it's just right in your face. He makes it very clear of what he's talking about. Um, let's see. He says in Ezekiel 26, oh, I don't want to read all of it, but we'll read some of it. And it came to pass in the 11th year, first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, because that Tyrus hath said against Jerusalem, aha, she is broken, that was the gates of the people. She is turned unto me. I shall be replenished. Now she is laid waste. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God. Behold, I am against thee, O Tyrus, and will cause many nations to come up against thee, as the sea causeth his waves to come up. And they shall destroy the walls of Tyrus and break down her towers. I will also uh, scrape her dust from her and make her like the top of a rock. It shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken it, saith the Lord God, and it shall become a spoil to the nations. And her daughters, which are in the field, shall be slain by the sword, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Okay, so anyways, I won't read all of it, but you get it. There is a prophecy against this city. Letter A under that notice, Nebuchadnezzar would besiege the city and take it. B, the armies of many nations would come against it. C, Tyre would be destroyed and never rebuilt. The sea would cover all the ruins of the city, even the very dust of it. E, the location of the city would be barren at the top of, as the top of a rock. And F, the location would be a place for spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. Boy, why so much detail? Well, notice, only two or three years after the prophecy was given, Nebuchadnezzar, with his army of recruits, 
from many subdued nations besieged the city. Now Nebuchadnezzar uh, brought, as you, they take over cities, they take all the young, strong, strapping young men and recruit them or force them into the army. So he had a mighty army. As they did, notice the people of the city moved out to an island about a half a mile offshore, and they built another city. They then withdrew from the old city, and Nebuchadnezzar took it and destroyed it. The tire you see on a map today is still located on that island. The old city has never been rebuilt, even though that location is said to be uh, one of the most ideal places for a city uh, to be found in all the world. Notice the next page. In about 332, though, notice 260 years later, well, here comes Alexander the Great, the great and mighty general. He swept down the Mediterranean coast with the Greek hordes. He had no navy and was unable to capture the new city. Therefore, he simply pushed the ruins of the old city into the sea and pushed earth on top of them and built a causeway onto it, out to it. Today, this causeway, which is built on the ruins or the ruins of ancient Tyre, has no growth upon it. It is as barren as the top of a rock. For centuries and still today, fishermen spread their nets upon that barren causeway in the midst of the sea so they will dry in the sun. Isn't that amazing? Just down to the very minute details of what's going to happen to a certain city and pushing it through. Now again, looking at all of this, it's amazing to see that there is a Bible we have that is accurate, very, very accurate. Again, I encourage you to study these in more detail for yourself, okay? Now let's look at the last one here, number four because this one is incredibly detailed and interesting. The prophecies concerning the birth and ministry of Jesus Christ. Over 300, now underline that in your notes, over 300. I don't know if you've seen this recently, there's a chart put out and it's kind of gotten real popular, but it looks almost like a rainbow. It's got a bunch of this, these things and it's 63,000, I think it is, 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. And so it has all these verses and then a line from this verse over to this verse, if you understand what I mean. You can look it up for yourself. Maybe you've seen it. But all these lines going like this, 63,000 cross-references in the Bible. There is no other book on planet Earth that does that. You cannot tell me this Bible is not divinely inspired. God has given us a, a book. Okay, now notice, over 300 such prophecies were given in the Old Testament and fulfilled to the letter. That's what Jesus said. I come to fulfill. There is hardly a move Jesus made that was not foretold at least 400 years before he was born. Now that's amazing. Well, let's look at a few of them here. Look, one, or letter A, he'd be born of a virgin. Now I said this last week, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Now what is the sign? We have to clarify what the sign is. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The sign is not that his name is Emmanuel. This is what modern versions say. Modern versions, other versions of the Bible, change the word virgin to young maid or young girl or young woman. Well, the problem that we have with that, again, I'm sorry, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but the problem we have is that any young girl, 12, 13, or 14, or 15, you know, can have a baby. Depending on when she starts, you know, she can have a baby. And so to change that word is a problem. We have a problem with that. Now, here's their reasoning behind it. We want to make it easier to read. We're all for that. The King James did that. If you took a 1611 King James when it came out in 1611, we couldn't understand it. The, the, how they spoke, you know, that Elizabethan type of uh, way they spoke. It's hard to understand. We wouldn't be able to read it. So they came later on and updated it 
to the English we have now. We don't have a problem with them updating the Bible for easier reading. We have a problem when they change words purposely from virgin to young woman. Why do that? It confuses people. So now if you read it, behold, I'll give you a sign. A young woman shall conceive. That's no sign. What's the sign? The sign is the virgin. If you have a little girl, a 15-year-old girl, 16, don't know how old Mary was, that is pregnant all of a sudden and they come to Joseph and say, Joseph, man, hey, we all make mistakes, bro. I know. Okay, we all make mistakes. He goes, no, uh, uh. <laughs> I didn't, we didn't do anything. <laughs> come on now. Now, by the way, Jesus had to deal with this the rest of his life. Later, when he was about 30 years old, they came to him and they said, listen, we, we be not born of fornication like you are. Your mom's a whore. Those are fighting words. But Jesus, he didn't say it, did he? He was full of grace and truth. So there's the sign. Now notice this. He'd be born of a virgin. There's a sign. Well, was that fulfilled? <laughs> yeah. Letter B, he would, be, he would come from the tribe of Judah. This is very important. Genesis 49 and verse 9, I have it in your notes. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people. Well, who's Shiloh? It ain't no big secret. He's talking about the Messiah. That's who he is. The Messiah is coming. And it's coming from Judah. Did he fulfill that? Absolutely. We know that. Okay, let her see. He would be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2. We've, we've studied this many times. Thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. No baby born in Bethlehem was from everlasting. Only one. And again, by the way, if they would have gone and knocked at the door of Mary, everybody knew where Jesus lived. She, 528. Bethlehem Road. I don't know. You know. Yes? You Mary? Yes. Your son Jesus? Yes. He claims to be the Christ, the Messiah. Yes, I know. <laughs> the problem we have, though, is that he was born in Nazareth. And the scripture, and she interrupts him. Uh, let me tell you the story. <laughs> he grew up here, but he was born in Bethlehem. Really? Yeah. And she told him the story. If they would have just asked, they would have known. But what was their problem? You remember the uh, Jerusalem Jewish leaders? They said this, go and search the scriptures, for out of Galilee, Nazareth, comes no Savior. They missed it, didn't they? Just go ask him. If they would have just asked Jesus, hey, I have a question. <laughs> Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Someone just raised their hand. I have a question. By the way, did you notice nobody had a question? I had a fellow one time I was preaching, and he raised his hand. I said, sir, I'm not done yet. Hang on a second. <laughs> I have a question. I said, can you wait till after the service is done and I'll ask you the question. He, had a, he, had a, he needed an answer then. <laughs> and by the way, the question, it, good thing I didn't let him talk because he was, he was crazy. And bless his heart, praise the Lord. But I tried to help him. He just couldn't figure it out. I mean, he was on something. And so anyways, but no one ever asked the question. If they would have just said, Jesus, where were you born? I'm confused. By the way, you've been, some of you have been reading your Bible. You're in your Bible reading schedule. Have you gotten into Leviticus and you got it? Oh, boy. Isn't that tough? I'm reading. And so I'm like, well, I said, Lord, what? You know what? I'm going to start listening to it. Maybe that'll help me. So I put it in, you know, and I listened to it. Oh, man, that's hard. And they, what and the what and the what? <laughs> if they would have just asked him, right? They would have found it out. Okay, let's go. Letter D. He would come through the lineage of David. Now, this is very important. Psalm 89. 
Psalm 89, verse 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant. Well, what did you do? Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. All generations. So very clearly, we don't have time to get into all that. But he is sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ, today. He's there making intercession for us. That's what the Bible says. He's on the right hand of God. Okay. Letter E, he would be betrayed by a friend. Psalm 40, 41, verse 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, whom did eat of my bread. Well, we know he ate bread with him. Hath lifted up his heel against me. Now, not foot. Some of these translations change this word. Foot, boot, shoe. Uh-uh. Why is it a heel? Because of Genesis 3. Genesis 3.15 says what? Satan, who possessed Judas, really, put his heel, right? Tried to mess with that. There's the heel thing. And he says, uh, uh, I'll eventually take care of Satan in the end time. But he was betrayed by a friend. Now notice this. Many people were betrayed by a friend. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, thrown in a well. Ezekiel was betrayed by his friends. Jeremiah was betrayed by his friends. They took and threw him down in a, a well full of about up to his knees in water. Left him there to die. He said, hey, let me out. Please, please let me out. They said, no. Left him there to starve to death. Till one slave came by who had a heart of compassion. One of the slaves threw a rope down in there, helped him out. Left him to die. How many people we go throughout the body? David was betrayed by his own son. Absalom came and tried to kill him. And he wept as he looked out over. And he said, oh, Absalom, Absalom, I would have... I would have forgiven you. I would have loved you if you just came back. But it was too late. He's already dead. So many throughout Scripture have been betrayed by a friend. And again, just a little side note. Uh, who are your friends? Uh, if your friends are pulling you away from this book, now love on them and encourage them and pray for them and try and reach them. But you ought not be hanging out with them if they're pulling you away from this. Why? Because it's not going to do you any good. Okay. It's going to hurt you. And by the way, I don't care what my friend thinks. I'm not trying to please him or her. I want to know what he thinks. That's the only thing that matters. Now, easy to say, hard to do, I know. Okay, letter F, that he would, be, uh, he would die by crucifixion. Go to Psalm 22 real quick, and we'll be almost done here. Psalm 22, if you're reading through your uh, Bible reading, maybe you've uh, read through this, but Psalm 22 describes this thing. Now, why is this so interesting? Again, because... This was written more than 600 years before crucifixion was even used. Nobody even knew what it was. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's what Jesus quoted. Okay? Now when he said that, the people listening said, Oh, he's quoting scripture. <laughs> they stuck a sponge, a long reed with a sponge on the end of it, stuck it in a bucket and put it up to his mouth. And again, I've said it before, I'll be careful what I say, but... In that bucket, they would use vinegar and stuff to make them, put it in his mouth to make them thirsty to where they would die quicker. But in it also was the, the uh, Roman soldiers standing there. They'd use the bucket to in both. <laughs> both. And they'd stick the sponge in it, shove it up in his face, you know, just smash it in his face. Open wounds, by the way, bleeding to death. Just, isn't it sick? Now think about that. Why art thou far from helping me, he says, and from the words of my warring? Oh my God, I. Cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. In the night season, I am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praise of Israel. Oh, let's keep going. Where can I go here? Um, uh, verse, go down to verse 12. Could you do that? Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round about. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. 
I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. Now again, remember they pierced his heart. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. He had dry mouth, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now anybody reading this, this is 600 years before they did that. They're scratching their head going, what? Okay. Pierced my hands and my feet. By the way, you remember what Zechariah says? Uh, when we see him, we'll know him. Why? He's going to go, <laughs> here, look, look, right? They're far from, uh, they parted my garments among them, cast lots. Remember the Roman soldiers did that? They were gambling, trying to see who would win his coat so they could go hang it on their mantle as a trophy. Be not thou far from me, O Lord, of my strength. Deliver me and help me. Anyways, some of this stuff here. This is describing this. This is 600 years before crucifixion. By the way, the, the, prior to the Roman rule that came, people in war respected each other. Although you just are about to kill another guy, you respected him as a man. You didn't torture him. They would take and uh, they knew they were about to die, and he's probably cowered down, and the guy's over him with a sword, and he said, please make it quick. And the guy said, I will, out of respect. And to... Crucifixion is the most vile, cruel way to die. That was from the Romans. Romans came for their prisoners and others and stuck them up on a pig pole, basically, and let them die. Why don't you put them out of their misery? They said, nah, uh-uh. We want them to be, they want, we want them to suffer. Okay, anyways, thinking through, so many people throughout history have used this cruel device. So many people. Uh, Genghis Khan would come through, as you've read any of that, and he would torture people. Sick, twisted man. But he'd taken all kinds of things. He'd take and just uh, rip their fingernails off. And uh, World War II, they would do all kinds of stuff. The Nazis would keep one bullet in their pocket in case they got into a bad situation, and they'd take the bullet and use it for themselves, right? Because they, what, don't want to be tortured. They do not want to be tortured. And uh, anyways, the crucifixion, a vile, cruel thing. In Vietnam, you know, they would take and cut the ears off of the Vietnamese, use it as a necklace, you know, just sick, twisted people. That's the, that's the way it's gone in history, the degradation of it, right? And so anyways, God will be back soon to make everything right. Letter G, notice though, he would rise from the dead. Psalm 16, verse 10, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thy Holy One to see corruption. Again, okay? Now, clarifying this, that he came up, he would not be left in the grave. That's what that means, okay? He would not be left in the grave, he would come back from the dead. Okay, anyways... His suffering, lastly, and death, and the purpose of them are given in Isaiah 53. Let's go to Isaiah 53 real quick, and we'll be done here. Isaiah 53, and he describes for us exactly what he would go through. Isaiah 53, very fascinating chapter, very fascinating. Notice what he says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and we shall see him. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Again, he was not a blue-eyed, long, blonde-haired, hippie-looking guy. Okay, He wasn't. He was a Jew. And when they saw him, they were surprised. Remember what they said? Is this not Jesus? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not Mary's son? They were surprised because there was nothing like about him that you go, whoa, he's, he must be the Messiah. He's, a, he's this angelic being. No, he was just a normal man. Verse 3, notice he's despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. By the way, every day of his life was acquainted with grief. It was a hard life. He had to deal with the stigma of his mama 
having him out of uh, basically wedlock. Uh, he had to deal with, he grew up in a poor home. He didn't have any money. He worked with his dad as a carpenter. That was one of the lowest jobs you could get. His hands were calloused. He was always working long hours. He was acquainted with grief. And notice as we, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, and we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. Oh, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, notice, was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. You ever seen a, a sheep being sheared? What do they do? They freeze. They don't even move. The most powerful man who ever walked the face of the earth, most powerful, created everything. And what did he do? Didn't say a word, didn't do a thing in retaliation. He let them. He told them, in fact, Pilate said, do you, not, do you not understand what situation you're in? Do you not understand what I could do to you? He said, you'd have no power except to be from God. Meaning, I'm here to die. You're not forcing me to die. You didn't come and force me into this chamber. I'm here. That's the purpose I came. I was born to die. Okay, so then lastly, because the entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is what we believe verbally inspired of God, it is God's Word without error. With, it's infallible. We already studied that. It's authoritative and absolutely reliable. It is God's revelation of Himself and His plan of salvation so that man can know Him in the free pardon of sin and be assured of going to heaven when he dies. It is God's revelation of Himself at His instructions so that man can know how to please Him and be happy in this life and eternity, uh, earn eternal rewards to be given when he gets to heaven. So, Again, God has made it very clear to us, given us everything that we need, everything that we need to fulfill the will of God, how to please Him and what to do. Our part is to actually just read it and study it and then do it and apply it. I know, again, it's easy to say, hard to do, but we can apply the Word. Aren't you glad we have a book that shows us exactly what to do, exactly where to go? And oh, how many years we wasted, if you're like me, how many years you wasted not following the book? And you found out that, boy, it's not a good life. Now, come back to this. You have a Bible that is accurate, that is true. And if all of these prophecies were fulfilled, then you better buckle your seatbelt because what it says about Jesus' second coming is about to happen. We believe it, right? It's going to happen. And we ought to be praying as a church, even so, Lord, come quickly. You ought to be looking forward to that day. If you don't look forward to the day of the Lord, Maybe some of you aren't married yet. I know. Okay, You're still waiting. If you're looking, not looking forward, oh man, you've got to be looking forward to the day of the Lord, right? And you look forward to it because those things are going to be fulfilled and they're going to be done. And I'm looking forward to that day. And again, hey, at the end of everything, if we're wrong, we didn't really lose anything, did we? <laughs> but if they're wrong, they're in trouble. They're in trouble. Because there is a God in heaven and there is a judge and he will judge all things. And there's a heaven to shun and a uh, a hell to shun, a heaven to gain. Uh, we used to sing that song. You ever sang that song? I always got it backwards too. Uh, but uh, we know the truth and the Bible is accurate. Okay, take this home. Study it for yourself. Look up some of these. I know it'll be a help to you. It'll give you some ammunition. To, to, to You got some people maybe asking questions in your life. You can have something to respond 
with. All right? Anyways, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, we are doing good on time. Let's have a word of prayer. Be dismissed. Lord, thank you again for this evening and appreciate your grace to be able to study some of this. Uh, just a handful of prophecies that were fulfilled, and yet there are so many, thousands of thousands, and we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We have a Bible we can trust, Lord. I know it's sometimes we have a little trouble understanding it, maybe, and putting forth some effort in reading it and studying it, but Lord, we have a Bible we can trust. We look forward to the day when the Word will become literally flesh before us. We will see you as you are, and we will get to ask you questions for all of eternity. Thank you for your goodness. Bless those that couldn't be here tonight and those prayer requests we mentioned. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.